Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It can be found in your Red Pew Bible on page 831. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, starting with verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that as the name of Christ Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Somewhere along the way, I picked this up. It's a list of ten property laws of a toddler. Ten property laws of a toddler. Law number one is if I like it, it's mine. Law number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Law number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Law number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Law number five, this is resonating, isn't it? Law number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Law number six, If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Law number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Law number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Law number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And then law number 10, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) Mine, mine, mine. Sound like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Good thing we grow out of that, right? Oh, we just learn how to disguise it a little bit better, that's all. Yeah, it's just as infantile as a toddler. We have been trained to ask, what's in it for me? And will this fulfill my needs? And how can I best position myself to take care of me. As it's been said, a life wrapped up in itself makes for a small package. And bookshelves are filled with self-helps. Psychologists are teaching self-expression. Courtrooms are filled with bitter divorces and lawsuits between family members over what is rightfully theirs. And we have successfully erected the monument of me, myself, and I. And in a world of poor impulse control, selfish preoccupation, and self-indulgence, what has it led to? What has it led to? Sexual diseases and addictions, family breakups, wars, political and religious scandals, unwanted pregnancies, burglar alarm systems, AIDS, church fights and divisions. I mean, we haven't fun yet. In what way is the church 
bought into the world's philosophy that it's at the top where life is really lived. Get all you can out of this life and you will have arrived. How have we bought that? See, go up. Go up is what sells. Go up is what often drives us. Go up keeps us pushing beyond our limits. And the corporate world has told us the way to make it, the way to success is by working our way up the ladder. Up the ladder. There was one businessman who said, I spent my whole life, my whole life going up the ladder to only discover it was leaning against the wrong wall. It's true. What is meant by working your way up the ladder? Well, it's, a, it's to live in a, a state of discontent, really. It means your head's always looking up for the next bigger and better and more satisfying thing. And you discover that, that thankfulness and contentment are, are elusive because you think that there must be something better out there. As one person aptly observed, one half of our problems come from wanting our own way. The other half comes from getting it. Is this the pathway to joy? Is it? Is an obsession with up the same formula for insanity? How is me first approach to life absolutely killing joy? Is there another way to go? Well, our passage this morning takes us to a different approach to life that is countercultural. It is at odds with mine, mine, mine. It's truly the pathway to joy. What is the direction that we must go if joy is to be regularly realized in our lives? Well, instead of climbing up the ladder, we are to work our way down the ladder. Down. Down. Everything about that word and everything that that word touches seems so negative, doesn't it? Downhill, downsize, downcast, downfall, breakdown, lockdown, knockdown, shutdown, and worst of all, down under. We don't like these words. I mean, who chooses down as a direction for life? Well, that brings us to the passage that Andy just read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Hope you're looking at it, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I want to remind you of the context of these verses for today in in verses 5 through 11. As we saw last week, it is the music of the gospel that must precede the words of the gospel. If we expect anyone to listen to what we have to say, then our lives must harmonize with the good news we speak about. And perhaps there's nothing more painful to the ears than the sound of disharmony and the noise of disunity among God's people today. Perhaps there's no greater scandal in our day than the way Christians mistreat one another. Disharmony discredits the credibility of the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers, does it not? 
And that's why Jesus prayed on the last night of his life the church would be believable through believers getting along with each other. And this is the very theme Paul picks up in chapter 2 of Philippians. He calls the church to unity. It's a call to do business with self-centeredness. It's a call to do business with, with the mind mentality and to take on a different mindset, a different attitude. That is what verses 1 through 4 are all about. And if we were to boil down the first four verses of chapter 2 to one word, as we saw last week, it would be the word others. Others. And then Paul says in verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul comes to the end of verses 1 through 4, and he says, now here is a for instance for you. If we are to comply with the admonitions of verses 1 through 4, then we must possess the same attitude as Christ. We are told in verse 5 to, 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 what, to think and do what Jesus did, what Jesus thought. To have the same attitude toward greatness that Jesus had. What was Jesus' mindset? Well, Jesus understood and, and it modeled that the path to greatness is down. That the way up is down. That the pathway to true joy is through downward mobility. If you want to know the pathway to joy, then the direction you must go is down. Let me say that again. It's our main point this morning. If you want to know the pathway to joy, then the direction you must go is down. The direction I must go is down. Jesus stepped down one rung at a time. And so I want to give you those. The top rung, the top rung. Jesus is truly and totally God. Top rung. Jesus is truly and totally God. Speaking of Christ, the beginning of verse 6 says, Who, being in very nature God, who in, be, in being very nature God. And when it speaks of Christ as being the very nature of God, or some translations have it, the form of God, it is to display outwardly and physically what is essentially true inwardly. Everything that makes God God was there in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not understand the extent of this downward mobility until we first grasp the fullness of who he is. This is the starting place right here, top rung, that makes everything else we'll see today so absolutely incredible. Jesus is at the very top, the very top. There was a never, never a time when Jesus was not God, And loved ones, we need to get this right. Young people are being blown away today by their loose understanding of the deity of Christ. We mustn't deny Jesus' divinity. I ask you, can you argue against Unitarianism? Can you argue against Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses who all say Jesus was not equal with God? Do you know where to go to support your arguments? 
Jesus in John 8, 58 said of himself, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to throw him. They got it. They understood what he was saying. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. You could check out Colossians 1, 15 and following, and, and you could look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and, and verse 14, and for starters, on arguing against those who say Jesus was not equal with God. He is truly and totally God. Years ago, the Broadway show Jesus Christ Superstar has Mary Magdalene singing, Jesus was just a man. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus was and always will be truly and totally God. And that's what makes the rest of this paragraph so astonishing. For it is this God who came down. It says next that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Next rung down, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead of grasping on to his own uninterrupted glory, he chooses to set it all aside. He's not under any obligation to do so. No one took it from him. He chooses to come to this helpless world on our behalf. He did not cling to all the rights and privileges he had by being God. The only person in the world who had the right to center on himself and to assert his rights was Jesus. He could have have turned stones into bread to feed his hungry stomach, but he did not. Yet he multiplied the loaves and fish to feed thousands of hungry people, others. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. David Jeremiah put it this way. He said he surrendered that which he loved in order that he might serve those whom he loved. He surrendered that which he loved in heaven in order that he might serve those whom he loved. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So the question, it begs the question then, what are you grasping onto and is it time to let it go? What are you grasping onto? What right, what, what privilege, what preference, what love are you holding on to that's not something that, you, that, that is to be grasped? I can guarantee you it's probably killing your joy. And so when we can open up that clenched fist, we can find joy and freedom. We mustn't clutch those privileges. We mustn't clutch even the blessings poured onto us from God but we're told to hold them loosely and be willing to even sacrifice them all for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did. Well, we come to the next rung, but made himself nothing. But made himself nothing. He had everything. He became nothing. 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 In most contexts, that's not a good thing. There seems to be nothing good about nothing. 
What do you bring into the potluck? Nothing. What do you have left in your checking account? Nothing. How many sales did you make this past year? Nothing. What do you bring to our company? What do you bring to the table? Nothing. What'd you do to your sister? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, how can you expect to be somebody and go places if you have nothing to offer? We might conclude that nothing's for nobodies. If you want to prove you're somebody, you ha- must have something. As one actress quipped, I always wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. <laughs> yeah. We see it here that Jesus made himself nothing. What does this say? The one word used here is kenosis, which some translate emptied himself. We sang it earlier. He emptied himself of all but love. What did he empty himself of? It's a loaded question that sparked much theological debate. While I was in Bible college, I had to write a 10-page paper on the meaning of Christ emptying himself. And I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But some would erroneously say that when Jesus was born and became a man, he emptied himself of all deity. In other words, he was no longer God, for he emptied himself of that in order to become man. Now, I already took a a little time as we looked at the first rung on the ladder to remind you that Jesus is truly and totally God, and that there was never a time he ceased to be God. Not even in his humanity. He was fully God, fully man. So this understanding, this teaching needs to be rejected. We need to throw that where it belongs, in the trash can. Others have suggested that the emptying has to do with Jesus limiting himself and the use of his divine attributes or the attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, meaning all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. It's possible to believe this and not be heretical, but I don't think that's what's meant here by his emptying himself. Get this. That's why I believe it's saying he emptied himself not by subtraction, but by addition. He emptied himself not by subtraction, but by addition. The incarnation, that moment in time when God the Spirit became man, has everything to do with what he added to his being rather than what was taken away. Jesus, at conception, And as he passed through Mary's birth canal and grew up and lived on this earth, he never acted independently of God the Father, but yielded his will to the Father's will. He emptied himself of all his rights, all his prerogatives, as as the one at the top rung. And he added humanity to his divinity. He was in every way human, except that he did not enter with a sin nature and he did not sin. But he knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He, He had to use doors, ride mules, and perhaps even wait in line. He knew what it felt like to, to stub your toe, to lose a tool 
to break out in a sweat. He, he knew it was like contrary to the words of a familiar Christmas carol, no crying he makes. Listen, he did cry. I had never heard anyone say their, their baby never cries. He cried. The one who is truly and totally God came down and he emptied himself, made himself nothing by taking on the likeness and appearance of man, as the passage here says further down in the section. He became something he wasn't before. He appeared as a real man. He walked and talked like an ordinary man. He didn't have this halo around his head, nor did some glow emanate from his body as he walked into a room. He was ordinary. By appearance. Everybody wanted to, to, most people wanted to be around him because he walked where they walked and he met them right where they were at. Years ago, when Joe Torrey was named manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, it was suggested by others that managing could be done better from high above the baseball field, from the level of the broadcasting booth. But Joe Torrey resisted that style of managing, for he wanted to be right in the dugout with his players. And he said this, upstairs, you can't look right into their eyes. Jesus went down in order to look into the eyes of people. And notice it was a willful choice. Others didn't make him nothing. He made himself nothing. He chose that for himself. Christ voluntarily became nothing. And Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. But we make ourselves nothing. What right do you need to give up for the benefit of someone else? What prerogative is yours that needs to be surrendered for others? We spend so much of our time and our energy trying to convince others we are something, trying to prove our worth when we ought to work our way down the ladder, make ourselves nothing so that we can love better. Paul says you want unity in the church, then consider others better than yourself. Stop trying to make yourself something, but instead willfully choose to make others look good. Build someone else up. Go in the direction of down. And you'll be on the pathway to joy and fulfillment. Someone wrote, how to be miserable. (laughs) Want to know how to be miserable? Listen to this. He says, think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. How to be miserable. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. You want to know how to be miserable? Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Do you want to know how to be miserable? Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. Love yourself supremely and be selfish. That's the pathway to a life of misery. The self-emptying says I make myself nothing. Oh, it goes down further. It goes down further. 
Jesus still goes down. Not only did he make himself nothing, the passage says, taking the very nature of a servant. Taking the very nature of a servant. Now, this is not saying that he simply played the part of a servant, but he willingly took on himself the very essence and nature of a slave. Do you see it? The one who deserved to be served became a slave in order to serve. Jesus turned upside down the definition of greatness. In all societies, it is the one who has many servants that is seen to have status and wealth and success and greatness. Yet Jesus says and demonstrates true greatness through serving others. And one of the more well-known demonstrations was when he washed the disciples' feet. Think about this. The creator of water. The creator of water put his hand in the bucket of H2O, then touched the dirty, smelly feet of his motley crew of followers. Think about that. And yet we say, oh, if she thinks I'm going to apologize, she's got to be crazy. We say, oh, if he wants me to to, to say I'm sorry, well, he's just going to have to move toward me first. After all, he started it. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. You know, there's a thread that unites us. There's an interest we all share. It is self-interest. And you can go to any continent in the world and you can live among any economic status or race or people group or age group. You can go to any church and you will find this dark side of humanity. You will find people just like you who live by the me first mindsets. And we're in competition with each other. Jesus taught his followers a new way of living, a new pathway to joy and greatness. It is to change, change mind to yours, getting to giving, ruler to servants. And can you imagine, can you imagine what would happen in our marriages? Can you imagine what would happen in our churches and in our communities if we stopped viewing ourselves as number one and at the top rung of the ladder and instead viewed others that way? Can you imagine Imagine the impact. Servanthoods. Stoop to love. Someone once said to Mother Teresa, I wouldn't touch a leper for $1,000. Mother Teresa replied, neither would I, but I would lovingly touch a leper for the love of God. What attitude is needed if we are to be a servant? Well, I need to go to the next rung. He keeps going down. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Jesus had no reason for humility. We have every reason for it. The one who owned, the one who created everything and everybody could have strutted around like the king of the hill, but he chose humility. Did you hear that? He chose humility. It wasn't that he was humbled by others, but he humbled himself. Jesus didn't approach humanity by asking what's in it for me or what do I get out of it. He humbled himself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
When Augustine was asked, what are the three central, what are the central principles of Christianity? He replied, there are three principles that are central to Christianity. Number one principle is humility. Number two is humility. Number three is humility. Jesus possessed the lowliness of mind as to be seen in us, as Paul mentioned in verse three. Lowliness of mind. Do you have a lowliness of mind? Do we approach others to tell them what we have done, to give them our resume, to say, oh, how good I am? The whole issue with us is that being a somebody is attached to the wrong things. Our intellect, our reputation, our careers, our ministry, the success of our children, and all that we own. We attach our significance and our being somebody to all those things. Yet we are called to bend our knees to this one who came to pour out his life for others. It's been said this way, Christ who was a somebody became a nobody so that we were a nobody in Christ might become somebody in Christ. Well, the next rung on the ladder is seen by his humble obedience. He became obedient to death. The point is you got to get real low to see that. He became obedient to death. We see his humility, ultimate humility, and what it cost him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, knowing that his death was imminent, cried out in anguish, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup, may this suffering, may the cross be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The one who had no sin lowered himself to the place of total surrender to the will of his Father, which led to his death. You know, you know, it's one thing to obey when no pain is involved in the choice. But it's another matter altogether to obey when it might involve suffering of some kind. To obey when the gain is immediate, that's one thing. But to obey when you're unable to see any immediate benefit is something entirely different. And often, we want God to act, and then we'll do the right thing. When God calls us to do the right thing and then wait on God to act. This is total abandonment to God and to his purposes. It requires we're willing to go down as low as we need to in order for God's plan to be carried out. It's to do business what needs to die in us daily. What is it that needs to die in us daily? Self. Self. Remember this, God became man in order to free me from my biggest problem. What's my biggest problem? Me. I'm my biggest problem. Nobody else. Me. That's why he had to die. It wasn't enough of a downward descent, the fact of his dying, but one more step downward in how he died. It says, even death on a cross. Did Christ know that to be born was to die, and to die such a shameful death and for the sins of others? Yes, he knew his incarnation also meant his crucifixion, which is an accursed way to die. It's an execution of a criminal. It's painful. It's embarrassing. I don't have time to speak of all of it this morning. And yet we see Jesus making his way down the ladder one rung at a time. The great descent from being equal with God and having all the joys of heaven to the lowest form of human death. Why? Who does this? 
Why did he choose this? One word. The word we left off with last week. Others. Others. That runs through all of this, this section in Philippians 2. Why did he empty himself? Others. Why did he become a servant? Others. Why did he take on the likeness of man? Others. Why did he become obedient to death? Others. Why did he die a criminal's death? Others. He gave it all away. He went down the ladder, all because of you and all because of me. Jesus had his eye on doing the will of the Father and to carry out his mission. And he went down and down and down, and the result was God lifting him up to his rightful place. Let me read these verses. I'm not going to be able to unpack it for you. We don't have time this morning. Verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Make no mistake about it. Jesus didn't give in order to get. He didn't go down and become man so that he would get something in return. This exaltation here is the result of the incarnation and not the purpose of the incarnation. There's a difference. His being exalted was the result. The purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of Christ coming to earth is what we see there in verses 10 and 11, to save sinners. His mission was our salvation that all willingly will confess his name because there's going to be a day when all will confess his name. The dark side of that confession is going to be reluctance by some to confess his name. And Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and following speak of that. It's a confession that is forced, but there's a confession that is joyful. What are we to be about? Proclaiming this salvation to the world so that more and more people might bow joyfully before him. Because all will bow. And if we get more people to do that willingly rather than reluctantly, we're accomplishing our mission. And how are they going to best see that in action when we live out verse 5? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus because Christ was all about serving, giving, losing, and eventually dying. We are to make ourselves nothing, die to selfish interest, and follow Jesus down the ladder, step by step, rung by rung. Now, what does working our way down the ladder look like for you? What does it look like? It doesn't mean you aren't to advance in your company. It doesn't mean that you can't accept that promotion or or never better yourself in your job or you must always downscale. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it may mean that. It may mean accepting less pay at a different job because you want to have more time and resources to build relationships and to build a kingdom. It might mean that. I had a good friend who in the corporate world was advancing on that ladder and he kept going up and up and up. And he could have gone all the way to the top of his company, yet he he declined offer after offer because he knew the demands on his time. He knew it would take him away from investing in people's lives. And he said, no, I will not go there. You do what you have to do. And you know what eventually cost him his job? 
He was willing to work down the ladder rather than keep moving up. He didn't regret it one bit. That isn't the case with everyone. But for him, it was a willful choice and a costly choice he knew he had to do. What is the step down God is calling you to? What is it? Sometimes we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking... It's like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. And so we view sacrifice as that ultimate price of martyrdom, dying for Christ, being ready to go out in a blaze of glory. If God calls me to it, I will do it. But the reality is, that it's more like going to the bank and cashing in that $1,000 bill for quarters. The Christian life is more like giving him 25 cents here, 50 cents there. It's more like stopping to listen to that person's troubles instead of blowing right by them. It's giving that cup of water to that shaky old man in the nursing home when you'd rather go do something for yourself. It's serving Christ in that less than glamorous act of touching dirty feet. You see, working our way down the ladder means doing little acts of love 25 cents at a time rather than the whole thing. Might it be easier to go out in a blaze of glory? Isn't it hard and harder to live the Christian life as a servant? In humility, considering others better than ourselves, little by little by little over the long haul. Isn't that harder? Isn't it easier for for me to say, oh, I would go into a burning building and save my wife if I had to. But oh, how harder it is to give 25 cents of love all day long, all my life. That's harder. It's easy to do the other. We want to follow the example of Christ and his humility. We must take the high road, which requires getting low for others. Stooping to love, going down. It requires continually serving regardless of personal cost. This is how we have the mind and attitude of Christ. Because the way up is down. Let's pray.